Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. On this week's very special episode, we're sharing a selection from our archives. Back in 2001, Martin Scorsese joined friend and colleague Kent Jones for an evening of reflection and appreciation of film history. The conversation was part of a series called The Next Generation of Film, which was co-presented with The New York Times. Punctuated by relevant clips, the wide-ranging discussion covered topics like film restoration, visual storytelling, and authenticity in cinema. Scorsese's latest film, Silence, is now playing in theaters. The event ran almost two hours, so we're splitting the episode into two parts. Let's go now to part one. going to talk about movies. I mean, stuff that, you know, you've seen over the years, that we've talked about over the years, you know, yeah. and uh, I want to start off by just asking you a simple question. I can't remember. What was the first movie that you ever saw? The first movie I can remember seeing by, by title, I think. I, they took me to see a lot of films because I had the asthma in 1940. I was born in 42, so by 45, I had contracted this asthma. And my parents, you know, were not um, that educated in that sort of thing. So, yeah. uh, they basically overreacted, I think, to a certain extent, and uh, put me in a room, you know, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave him in there. Yeah. He seems to be yelling. No, leave him in. It's all right. Uh, put me in a room, left me alone, that sort of thing. And then basically, I think um, uh, what happened is that they, the only place they could take me, and, they, and they, had, they, they used to like to take, they used to like to go to the Staten Island. And whenever I went there, I used to love the Oh, it was just wonderful. You saw trees and everything. But um, I would get sick immediately and I had to come back, and it was very dis- disappointing. So the other place I could think of was a movie theater. So I must have been in a theater a lot. But the thing I remember most, I've always talked about this with you, was that my father took me a lot at that time, late yeah. 40s. And uh, he was a very avid moviegoer. And uh, I remember clearly a trailer of um, my father saying, uh, it was beautiful color up on the screen. And... Um, the reason that, that was important was because where I came from, it was more urban. And when I went to the movies, I saw this open spaces. I yeah. saw, you know, the westerns, the horses, the palominos, the color. It was, you could taste it. It was so beautiful. And the color I got to like very much was that cine color, which yeah. is too, like, our, two, like, uh, right? turquoise sky yeah. and pink crown, you know, yeah. and pink, pink, you know, I don't know. I, uh, Rod, Roy, Roy, Roy Rogers was a lot in, in, in uh, cine color. It was a two color process. And it had a kind of magic to it because it was completely unreal. Completely. Um, uh, the, and my father leaned over. I was watching this thing. I didn't know it was a trailer or whatever. He said, it's playing next week. He says, uh, uh, do you know what a trigger is? you know what a trigger is? I said, the trigger is a gun. He said, no, that's the name of the horse. <laughs> and I saw the horse. I yeah. Roger's just leap with the horse over a log or something. And we put that in the Italian documentary. Yeah, it's in the Italian documentary. That's documentary. what it is. That's right. And I was, uh, that was it. That was the first movie memory by title, I remember. Of course, the first movie by... Um, uh, by, not that wasn't by title, that's a trailer. So I don't know what the features were, but the first movie I remember by title that I saw was Duel in the Sun. My mother took me to, to see it because I like westerns and uh, we always tell that story that it was condemned by the church, but you know, my mother yeah. said, the kid likes westerns, I'm taking him to see it. <laughs> so, keep him quiet for an hour, you know. But uh, the other film 
but Duel in the Sun, we talk about on the American documentary that I did, that affected me strongly. Again, that color, you know, that color was so special. I didn't see that kind of color in the street. That's very unusual color in Duel in the Sun. That color is like, uh, it's lurid, uh, and I remember being frightened by the, uh, the Duel in the Sun itself that dissolves to the sun. Yeah. And that, that's Tompkins music. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was pretty scary for a kid. I think what was more frightening was the emotional violence of the film. It was, mm-hmm. the, the, other, the film was beautiful looking. So I'm not talking about the story and the melodrama and all that. I'm talking about the, the, uh, the passion, I think, that they all felt for each other. Uh, yeah, Peck character, character, Jennifer yeah. Jones, Joseph Cotton, and Lionel Barrymore was really overdoing it, and William Gish too, but they were just, they believed every second they were going, you know? Yeah. And I had no critical context it was just these people were, were behaving in this way. It was amazing, and uh, I didn't understand those emotions. I saw emotions like that around me from time to time. I must have, mm. and therefore I connected something. But um, the fact that, they, that the passion could, could ultimately, ultimately end in uh, death of both, both the lovers mm-hmm. is quite, was quite strong for me, I guess. It was very disturbing and savage and primitive. And, uh, you know, as opposed to the, the, the first picture Spielberg saw, uh, Which was uh, the greatest sh- uh, show on earth. Greatest show on so, earth. So yeah, more benevolent. No, no yeah. he makes it. I make. The, I got the duel of the sun with the you know, <laughs> with the neurotic uh, you know the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> the blazing sunset. The blazing sunsets and the lovers killing each other. Okay. You get the blazing circus. Um, but th- there was there was another one. Oh, it's a, that you never saw anything. If you never saw the greatest show on earth on its first release, you had to see it with a certain age, with that train wreck. Mm-hmm. Talk about motion picture spectacle. Yeah. I mean that's there's something about the interior. And I don't like the circus. But there was something about the interior of that circus tent shot in three-strip Technicolor, the way DeMille framed it. It's just, you know, it was almost like a documentary in, in three-strip Technicolor. The story, well, they had this, the sweet stuff with Jimmy Stewart and, mm-hmm. and the dog and, and all that. But the, uh, the power of the images about DeMille, and there's no, I could understand where Stephen just spoke, tied right in beautifully and, and taken over that, that to the very best of all of that, you know, I think yeah. in terms of spectacle and Hollywood film. Uh, but there was one other film, I thought of it late last night, I was watching, what was I watching? Oh, Woman on Pier 13 was on. Oh yeah, the Anti-Communist Festival. Anti-Communist Festival I was yeah. watching, yeah. Uh, you know, something else. <laughs> it's Anti-Communist Month. On it was on TCM, movies. it was a whole thing. No, because I grew up, I was, I was eight years old, seven years old, during the Cold War, at a period when we had air raids in the school. And it was terrifying. And we were sure we were going to be bombed. And, uh, all the films I was seeing were things like Red Planet Mars and uh, Woman on Pier 13. Yeah. I didn't really see it. There's, there's another Fear famous. Makers. The Fear Makers. Shark and there was, uh, oh, this one great movie called Invasion USA. Oh, yeah. In which the Russians really invade America. And uh, some dress up like army, uh, American army. And uh, uh, there then, there's this wonderful shot. And the picture was made for like two cents. And <laughs> it was, but it was so vivid. Um, there are these shots of American soldiers behind sandbags outside the, the capital, and they're guarding. And uh, they're, they were told that their Russians have dressed up like American soldiers. So uh, they have to test them, sort of like in the Battle of the Bulge, you know. Yeah. Um, just got back from a vaudeville show, you know that they would test yeah. the guys? What do you know, Joe, just got back from, you know, they, they would actually test to see the if they're Americans, Americans, if they knew certain gags. Right. And if not, they get shot. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was serious. I mean, Battle of the yeah, Bulge. If you weren't a vital lover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, anyway, this is a wonderful scene. And the Russian soldiers dressed as Americans come in, and they say, you know, hi, Joe, whatever. He says, oh, yeah? He said, uh, you, you're, you're sure, you know, you're, not, you're, you're really American? He goes, absolutely. He says, okay, what did the Cubs do in the last inning, in, in the last, uh, in the last uh, World Series? Yeah. He goes, Cub? Cub is but a baby bear. 
<laughs> and it's <laughs> Boom. They're commies, you know? <laughs> you see that? And so we, you know, we were terrified of the whole thing. And uh, Invasion USA, not to be con confused with the Chuck Norris. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no, I know you do. You leap at those things. But yeah. there was another one that I remember now, and I was thinking late last night watching this thing. I was watching a documentary on Robert Johnson, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl? It's beautiful. And uh, it was about one, 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't know. And trying to get to sleep. And uh, I remembered when I, I, I grew up for the first few years of my life in Corona, Queens. And then there were some problems with the landlord. My father had to move back, and we came back to Elizabeth Street here. That was a big shift and a kind of crazy uh, time. And 1949, 1950. And I remember going to public school uh, for the first two years of um, uh, kindergarten, first and second grade, public school. And then when I came back to Manhattan, it was third grade, Sister Gertrude at, you know, at You're still the, in St. Patrick's. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, no, not. She's, yeah. She was tough. Yeah. <laughs> but in any event, uh, uh, I remember one day in the assembly hall, it's PS41, at, no, that's New York, I'm sorry. But in any event, this guy brought a projector in, and it was 16 millimeter. I didn't know the difference, but it was a very different film experience from watching it in the theater. Mm -hmm. Because I actually saw him rack up this film, 16 millimeter, and he projected this film that seemed to go on for ages. It was black and white. I don't know what the title is to this day, but it was the, probably the strongest, well, certainly one of the strongest ex emotional experiences of my life. It was about this kindly old man living in the forest. <laughs> no, I know we're supposed to be talking about serious yeah. film, but you're talking about. You're yeah, talking no, about, I know. You're talking yeah, about an emotional an experience. An emotional experience. Watching movies. That's what we're It was black and white. I, can, I think I know the picture now. I'm trying to find it, but I don't. Anyway, he takes care of these two little bear cubs. Yeah. And I love these bears. And I couldn't yeah. also, I couldn't go near animals. I had asthma. I couldn't touch dogs, no cats or anything. And this guy, he's got a nice white beard and he lives, he's like the hermit in the jungle, yeah. in the, uh, the, the forest. And at one point, now mind you, they're changing reels. I remember kids being taken home. All this going on, there was a lot of noise, and I'm watching this thing, but I must say, there's a scene where the two bear cubs, there's a flood, mm. and the bear cubs get caught in the flood, and they're gonna die, you know? Yeah, and the kindly and, old man. Yeah, and the kindly old man, I still to this day, I know he saved them, but mm -hmm. we were crying. Yeah. The kids were hysterical. Mm -hmm. It was devastating. I don't know what the film is, and I think I've tracked down to something called The, em the um, Enchanted Forest, Starring Edmund Lowe. And Edmund uh, it, Lowe would have played the. It's a monogram yeah. film in cine color. Okay. And I, it's out on DVD now. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I have, don't have the heart to sit through and see if it's one about the bear cubs. But it's, yeah. it's one of the first films about ecology, really. It was made in 1946, I think, and uh, monogram pictures. Cheap, you know, low budget. That's the, for the younger ones that may not they know. They made movies the, for one cent. They made movies, one yeah, for cents. one cent yeah. is right, not two cents. And uh, Breathless by Godard was dedicated to monogram pictures. Yeah you know, about a certain kind of programmer that they made. But this um, enchanted forest uh, had this kindly old uh, hermit living there, and, uh, and then there was this bad logging company that was coming in and knocking down the forest, and he was friends with all the animals. He talked to the squirrels, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's but not it's on the, DVD. But it's the emotional, mem it's the memory the, of watching. The, the, I've the, never gotten over the, uh, the feeling of incredible sadness of these two little bear cubs about to be killed. Yeah. <laughs> <They're> laughing. <laughs> I'm serious. They were about to be killed. They were, but you know, but he saved them. I'm sure he saved them. But kids were crying. We were crying. It was terrible. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I mean, I did once. Uh, my, my cousin uh, Verna, uh, my mother's side of the family, uh, is uh, an official at some of the public schools in um, 
in New York, and about this is about 20, 15 years ago. I'm oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll be I'll be only a minute. <laughs> I know how you feel. We're it's okay. Everybody up. <laughs> no, this is a, about 20, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. So would you come and talk to the kids and show them something? Sorry, uh, show them something. I feel the same way. Uh, show. I'm just rambling now, but she showed them something. So I brought the big shave <laughs> to the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Have you already seen the big show? Yeah. yeah. And it's, oh. a, it's a five minute film I made. It, it's, it, the kids really had quite a strong reaction. That's <laughs> so why they said, bring a short. I'm not, you know, what else can I, I didn't realize that not entirely, not exactly the right. I remember, I believe there was a story that when I was an instructor at NYU, uh, Jonathan Kaplan, who's now directing, of course, and John oh, Davison, yeah. who produced Airplane, and uh, Alan Arkish, all these kids, they were also working over at uh, the Fillmore East. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they would put on, in between like acts, between like, you know, uh, John Mayall and Jimi Hendrix, and they put something on, a film or clip from a film, they put on, here comes that funny reefer man from International House, uh, you know, things like that, and they get these clips, I don't know. So I give him the big shave, and, and I think Frank Zappa said, no, no, I saw it's not those kids on acid out there. <laughs> don't show it. <laughs> so they never got shown there. Well, but um, anyway. You want to, yeah. Yeah. Why don't we start with the first clip because it's actually about the emotion of watching movies. It's yeah. a clip from the Magic Box. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about the movie mm-hmm. a little bit afterwards. But uh, this is a really important movie. So, Don, let's go to the first clip. Oh. Yeah, that's um, the Magic Box. <clears throat> yep. The director, Roy uh, Bolting. Roy Bolting. John Bolting, I think. John Bolting. The sorry, the brother. And, and made for the Festival of Britain. Made for the the fiftieth anniversary, was it? 50th anniversary of filmmaking in England. Yeah. And they had in the film, um, beautifully shot in Technicolor, excuse me, by, by, by um, Chalice or? I thought it was, was it Jack Cardiff who I, shot it? I think it may have been Cardiff, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. But in any event, it was a three-strip Technicolor film, 1950. Yeah. And uh, uh, it, uh, it dealt with the story of um, William Freeze Green, who's played by Rob, the great <laughs> Robert <Yeah>. Donat. Uh, <clears throat> Wonderful actor who died around mid fifties, I think. After, did, in yeah. the late fifties, I guess he did Into the Sixth Happiness. Into the Sixth Happiness, <clears throat> yeah. He's very ill. And uh, um, he plays this. Uh, well, I mean, every country has. Apparently, you know more about this than I do. In that, in the sense of every country has uh, their version. Most countries have their version. France and England, even Italy, I think, and uh, certainly in America, the person who invented cinema. Yes. And America, it's Edison. Um, the, actual, the actual. The uh, actual celluloid, the perforations, the tension. He talks about you must have, you have to have tension. And it's so wonderful where he says that. But you, you do need the tension on the, on the rollers, yeah. and you also need the tension in cinema itself, yeah, I think. Right. But in any way, he, um, in England, <clears throat> I think the closest they come to it, and it's still, it's still arguable, is William Freeze Green. And they made this film about him um, in 1950 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of uh, British cinema. And it's packed with cameos by It's packed stars in and only the old <clears throat> British way could do, like, the way, uh, I don't know, the way I, sometimes the wonderful British actors, everybody's, everybody, every wonderful British actor is in this film yeah. the, from the earliest, 1920 on. And uh, that's uh, Laurence Olivier playing the policeman. The scene that precedes that is very interesting. I mean, the whole film is fascinating to me. I saw it at, at the age of eight. And uh, I learned a lot about it. But what I learned was this extraordinary, what I, I felt this certainly emotional impact, this emotional, emotional connection to Robert Donat, who was a wonderful character, who's, um, the way he behaved on screen was extraordinary. He was in the 39 Steps, Hitchcock, and he was also in The Ghost Goes West, which is a wonderful film by Rene Clair, which has always been shown on television at that time. And I got to like him, I got to like his sound, 
and he was his gentleness. And I think you could see an, an aspect of that in this film. What you have to know about the film is that William Friesgreen, up to this point, has been trying everything to um, uh, make pictures move. And he's failed over and he's And he's failed again. miserably. <clears throat> and there's still, to this day, some contention as to whether he ever succeeded. Mm -hmm. you know? And um, uh, in a sense, um, not only does he fail, but he loses his family. He loses everything. He loses everything, um, his livelihood. But he's obsessed with getting these motion picture, these images to move on a screen. And when he finally does it, it's up in this dirty old place that he has there. He's put together as finally this magic box, so to speak. Uh, he's discovered, ultimately, through trial and error, uh, the size of the frame. The frames, I think he had like 70 millimeter. The perforations were not regular. They were just punctured, and they could only be played like, like maybe three or four times, yeah, and then they'll be all pun the punched away. Yeah. There was no, there was no uh, uh, I've seen that. I saw it in, in England, uh, the perforations, the type of films he used, the type of film he used. And uh, he finally, in the middle of the night, succeeds. And the only person he could show he just runs in the street. There's a scene before this. He runs in the street looking for somebody to show. Yeah. He said, I've got to show you something. I've got to show you what I did. What I've done. What I've done. And he said, I've got to show you what I've yeah. done. It's a cop. And it's a Bobby. And it's played by Lawrence. He said, you're going to show me what you've done, eh? <laughs> so, he, <laughs> so when Olivier comes in the room, he goes, OK, where is it? He said, what? <laughs> what you've done. <laughs> he goes, it's right here. It's right here. What is he talking about? The man's insane. He has his hand on his. And of course, the British police didn't have any guns, of course. They, right. they had just the, the, he had that baton he was holding onto. And the wonderful, I mean, if you study the picture, just look at their faces. Olivier's look performance. Look at Olivier's face if he never did anything else in movies. Yeah, you know, in yeah. Movie. And that wonderful moment, he gets up and he looks behind the screen. And he said, where did it go? Yeah. And then Donat, after that, is so oh. obsessive about his, his quest. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. the tears start rolling down his cheeks. Tears, I've never seen a performance like that. Yeah. I was eight years old, and I learned about how pictures move from this movie. I, there's a scene in the earlier part of the film where he's a... Uh, a still photographer's assistant. And of course, a still photographer in that period where uh, you know, uh, everybody had to remain frozen still and that sort of thing. There were plate glass. And you can yeah. imagine coming from a period of, of a giant plate glass uh, negative to having an idea of having uh, 24 or 8 or 9 of these frames a, a second going, yeah. how, could you, how could you do it? You have yeah. to discover celluloid. You have, to, you have to make all kinds of experiments with different kinds of materials to see what will go through a camera, what kind of gears. and you know, tension and rods and all sorts of things. And in any event, um, he, he explains to Maria Schell, who's a wonderful German actress, uh, about the persistence of vision. Mm. And I think I did this in the documentary. You, you showed that he drew a little picture on the edge of uh, these, this, on the uh, margins of a book, a little picture of a, of a little girl with an umbrella and a dog, like stick figures. And then he just flipped them, yeah. and you see them move. Now, when they do it in the magic box, I, I can tell now, of course, it's animated. Mm. You know? But when I was a kid, I learned that you could, do, you could do that and pictures will move because he talks about persistence of vision, that your eye, uh, your eye perceives in such a way that one image is retained. And so there's an illusion of movement. And it's a whole other thing. And so I went home and I started drawing on all the telephone books. Yeah. You know, all kinds of things on the edges. And then, and then I realized panels, too. Panels are comic strips, yeah. and it all came from this. It came from this, and there was something very wonderful about his up, terrible obsession that he had. Uh, Where well, he's destroyed. And at the beginning of the film, he's at this meeting in London. He's a very old man, um, and he oh, yeah. remember what happens to him at the end. There, at the meeting is about. It's something to do with 
it has something to do with the British film industry, and they're always arguing about it. Michael Powell was alive, they always talked about it, and they still do. Stephen Frears talks about it, and that has to do with British production as opposed to American production, and the, the quota quickies came out of that, and they were always arguing yeah. about can we compete against Americans? Why are they competing? Alexander Corda, in a way, I guess was the first one to more or less compete in a, in a sense. Yeah. But because I was so young and British films were, um, in America, were easily uh, traded in a way because there's a semblance of similarity in languages, uh, you have, uh, you know, we, we saw these films as if they were American films, so we accepted them as American when we were younger. But in a, as, as, a, as a, of a similar culture. And they were marketed as being marketed, the same culture. Uh, yeah. Marketed as being in the same culture. <clears throat> uh, of course, very different, but um, we accepted them immediately. But at the end of this film, in, in The Magic Box, uh, he, um, he's at this meeting in which there were all, all the businessmen, all the industry men are arguing. That's about 1920 or something. Yeah. Or, yeah, and they're all arguing about what the future of British film. And he just gets up to make a speech, but he's an old man. He has a can of film, a little 10-minute can of film under his, under his arm. And um, it's his first experiments with color. And he kept, for the last like 20 years of his life, experimenting with color. He was all alone by then. He had kids. Uh, he, his families had broken up. He didn't see them anymore. He was all alone experimenting with color film. And he had them in the can. And he gets up to try to talk to these businessmen to say, please don't destroy this beautiful art form. Just don't do it with the industry. It's so wonderful, and they, there's a wonderful moment because they get a little, <clears throat> uh, because they, he's obviously, he's not, he's not all there at that point. He's not, it's like, a, I've had it happen a couple of times where an older person on a stage, a couple of times, where the, you'd ask a question and the person, they would just lose it, and you'd wait, and the audience, uh, it's, it's not a, it's, you feel so terrible for the, you know, for the person, and it's, it's, it's awful. And, uh, this is what happens to him. Of course, he collapses and dies right there, and they, they don't know who he is. So they go through, they find he had a few, a few bob, a few pence, uh, his name on something, and uh, a little experiment with color film. That was all that's left. It's a little bit like Griffith. Like Griffith, industry. yeah. yeah. Like Griffith. Well, you might, ended I, up. I can't hear you. Good. Oh, Good. Yeah, Good. My mic yeah, Mike yeah. is falling. But, uh, but Griffith ended up, <laughs> no, because I can't hear you. Yeah. yeah, it's very yeah. funny. But uh, Griffith, Griffith ended up, um, well, didn't he ask for a complaint about getting a job at one point yeah, with these guys? Did. Yeah, kind of like a star is born. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, he was at a, a, a testimonial or something, so would anybody out there give me a job? Was yeah, that? yeah. Oh, boy. and then he was an awful drinker. Yeah, too. yeah. And ended in disgrace. Yeah. But one thing that I wanted to, we've talked about in regard to this movie, is your idea of, of one image being joined to another as yeah. it grows out of this movie. Then. I, think, I think what happened is that there was this magic that I, I saw when I went to the movie theater that took you into, I didn't know how they were made. I guess there was somebody behind the screen. I didn't know, like Olivier's character there. I wonder what it was behind the screen. And I think what happened was that I connected emotionally with these images and these stories and these people and these faces, these extraordinary faces like these guys up here, you know. And uh, uh, <clears throat> I had no idea of the technical aspect and how that would be created. That a film was made. That a film was actually made, yeah. yeah. So then when I saw this film, and I understood then that one frame has the, the carriage here, and the next frame has it moving a little further. Mm -hmm. And then when I tried doing it myself and flipping it, I began to understand, uh, I began to get, it was kind of a, still a feeling of, uh, if I'm left alone, and it's quiet, mm -hmm. and we're in the editing room, mm -hmm. and the phone is stopped, and they're not coming to get me. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's Thelma and myself, and this thing happens on the screen. Mm -hmm. Even though it's now done with computer. 
something happens and this cut goes from one cut to another, the image changes, and then there's something that happens in between that cut. It, it's like a third idea mm -hmm. that occurs. It's a third frame, image, a third image yeah. comes in your mind, and that deals uh, emotionally and psychologically with, uh, it gives you an emotional and psychological reaction. I think the, the Russians, you know, the Kuleshoff uh, put, uh, Kuleshoff and Podovkin and Eisenstein wrote about that a lot, yeah. but I can't express how, how powerful it is to still get excited by that third image or that fourth image that comes into mind, that a series of shots are combined and it creates something else entirely. Mm -hmm. And uh, separate, each shot is fine and everything, but you put them all together in a certain way and it becomes something else and it becomes something extremely emotional. And uh, even when doing the Italian documentary, we go back and we try to figure out, we try to figure out where Fellini was cutting in uh, some of the, uh, like the, uh, the farmhouse sequence in eight and a half, you know, with the, yeah. with, veils and all kinds of things flying at the lens and the camera and then the lights shifting. Oh, yeah. I say, where did that shot end exactly? Well, oh, I see, he cut from here to here. Oh, yeah. fantastic, you know? And that sort yeah. of thing. And for me, therefore, the editing has always been um, very powerful. I mean, I love, I admire so much long takes, um, Ophuls and uh, a lot of stuff Kubrick uh, does. Uh, and of course, the other masters of long takes. I mean, you know, if you look at, I don't forget seeing you get Sue on television in New York, late 50s, they had this Channel 9, they showed these foreign films, Foreign Film Festival it was called, and they put uh, things like, you know, you know, Pate Panchali, you know, yeah. just thrown on, commercials, dubbed Dub, in English. Dubbed in English, yeah. But I saw it, yeah. I saw it, and somehow in the midst of people arguing, people in the street yelling, uh, my father having to go to sleep, because we had to, go, he had to get up in the morning, go to the garment district and work, and I'm trying to watch this thing, somehow all the yelling, I still was able to get some sense of this, this, uh, these masterworks. And one of them, you get to, believe me, I saw it with commercials and I saw it uh, dubbed in English, Ken, yeah. but only when I saw it on a big screen did I realize, and this is, I was about 14 or 15 or 16 too, I was just beginning to put this together, but I only realized the elegance of the long takes. Yeah. It doesn't, I, I mean. From seeing you know, a good print of it. Yeah, from seeing a good details. print of it, but I'm also yeah. saying that if, if the film means something to you, you're not gonna tell whether the cutting is doing it, whether the, the long take does it, uh, you just react. You just react. And, uh, you know, each one according to his, his or her own culture, too, or, or acceptance of other cultures, too, and other cultures visualizing um, interpretation, interpreting images in a different way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard to scan if Western or Eastern. You know what I'm saying? In certain Japanese films, certain Chinese films, are difficult sometimes. But because it, 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 things are where the director where the director has taken your eye and your heart, sometimes, I don't know, I can't go. That I can't so go there. Specific. It's so culturally specific that I have difficulty. Except in like that Zhao Wu, that Chinese Zhao film. Zhao Wu, yeah. is that it? That means Little Wu? No, Zhao Wu is the, is the name of the character. He's a pickpocket. This is the yeah. film by Zha Zhangke that was um, in, uh, that we showed in the Chinese series earlier this year, and he's the director of Platform. Platform, also. yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah. But this thing was uh, tough, and I, I didn't know, I, I watched it on video. And uh, again, it was all one take. It was all one take. And I, I said, it's interesting, this kid gets on a bus. He's got like glasses, I don't know if any people have seen it here, but I was trying to shoot this picture in, in Rome. The little picture. That picture, yeah. yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is finally I made it back on a, supposed to be, they told me it was a weekend. And I get in the house, <laughs> the phones weren't working, the baby, this, that, all kinds of, okay. So at a certain hour, we put a tape in like on a Sunday afternoon. I put this thing on, I just watched the first few minutes. 
I said, I got a lot. I, mean, I, was, I was doing some rewriting and stuff. I, I got to wait, wait till next week. Because there's something about this guy. He gets on, gets on the bus and uh, he's got his suit on, kind of, as an attitude. He's kind of hanging around like this. He's got these glasses on. He's got an attitude. And he's a complete misfit. And you know it immediately. And it's all body language. There's no camera moves. I mean, it's, yeah. there's no editing. It's just, but it's there. And you know it. And you relate to this guy. He gets on the bus, doesn't pay, sits in the back. So the driver tells the guy, one of the, the conductor or something, go in the back and get the money from him. So the guy goes back to him and he says, uh, pay up, you know, the fare. And the kid is like, uh, it's a cigarette or something. He says, uh, I'm police. <laughs> and you know that the guy in the uniform knows he's lying. But just the way the kid said, he's just not going to take him up on it. And he leaves. And the kid's a pickpocket. Uh, and basically, you follow this guy around. And you see him, um, in a sense, maybe you can explain it better. But he, he seemed like he basically is refusing to assimilate into, yeah, this, new, into, this, new, um, into this new life out yeah. in a small town outside of Beijing, apparently, right? Yeah, very small. Very, very small town. North. And yeah. his parents want nothing to do with him. His old friends want his nothing to do with him. They don't want him to come to the wedding. Uh, yeah. yeah, they don't want him to come to the wedding. And basically, he's um, a complete outcast. And by the end of the picture, this is one of the strongest endings I've ever seen. And then a title came up, and it said, uh, all non-actors. Yeah. Yeah. And now, apparently, this kid is a, a, yeah. the, the, the young man in the picture is doing more films, I think, right? Yeah. He's, yeah, he's in platform also. And then the, the, the guy is, uh, but it's hard for that director to make films, because he makes them independently. And it's, they, they can't really be seen theatrically in China. Unbelievable. What yeah. a movie. Yeah. But it, it goes back to this thing of, uh, of this, I think, a desire to say something so strongly, um, and, the den, and then that desire, apparently it has to do with cinema. He's going to do it on film, this person, right? But then there's also the sense of um, an, an intelligence of visual interpretation. In other words, not just shooting and handheld and running around, not knowing what they're getting. He's, he's framed. He pans slightly. You don't even notice it. And you keep going, you're with these people. And it's medium shots, there's hardly any close-ups. The soundtrack is really The soundtrack is too. terrible. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, so you can't, you know, but you're watching this thing, why? And I just, maybe because it's easier for me to identify like that, and on the other film, I always forget the name, uh, Hao Shen's writer. Flowers of Shen, oh, no, uh, the, A Borrowed uh, Life. A Borrowed Life, because of the working class thing, I can identify immediately with these guys and see what they, these people, how they're living. But in this uh, Zhao Wu thing, it's, it's quite interesting because I kind of identify, I, I prefer him to all these other people who are becoming uh, sort of um, upper middle class or upper class uh, yeah. going in for the- all the friends. All his <laughs> friends, yeah, yeah. And they want nothing to do with him because he's still a pickpocket. He's not gonna stop the old life, but he's more genuine about it. He's more, and he's also a great misfit. He's just never gonna fit in, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, I see in pictures like that, a kind of um, um, need. Um, they have to make it so much that it almost reminds me of neorealism, and they just had to make these films and threw it up on the, you know, really got it and shot it in Rome and shot it in Naples, and uh, against all odds, out of this incredible love and passion. Yeah. You know. And they can't get them seen. I mean, they can't get them seen. Chinese directors who are trying to make films about urban life, you know, as opposed to peasant melodramas. And, wow. Yeah. So you want to go to the? Yes. Go to the next clip. Yeah. All right. What is this? This is, uh, I think it's I shot Jesse James. Oh, I shot. Oh, yes, I'm proud. Next clip. Good Lord. Uh, that's that's so, um, I Shot Jesse James by Sam Fuller's first film that he ever directed. His first film that he directed, 1948, right? 49. 49. And he, um, I remember I loved Westerns, and, I, and I, I heard a title like that, I Shot Jesse James, and I, I had to go see it. I pestered yeah. the, my family so much 
So my father took me. And I even remember the bus ride when I was living in far. <laughs> I was living in Corona at the time, getting there, and there it was on the marquee. I shot Jesse James. It's got to be great, and it was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was opening like that. First of all, the credits go over that wanted poster, you know, and then the pic where the clip picked up. Uh, where the clip picked up is the end of the credits. It, it says written, directed, whatever, by Sam, uh, Sam Fuller. The name fades out, and then there's a flash, a, a swing, the pan swishes over to Jesse James's face. Mm -hmm. A low angle, extreme close up, and on a big screen in a theater in those days, very strong, a little perspiration, quiet. But obviously, the man is not at ease. There's great <laughs> tension in the frame, all done with the face and a bit of the lens that he uses, the, the angle that he chooses. Cut to another guy who's even less at ease, mm -hmm. who's looking apparently at this guy with the beard that we just saw in the first frame. <laughs> and something's going on between these two. You don't know what it is. You cut back to the fellow with the beard, is Jesse. Camera tracks out and you see the guns. And it's again the thing we always talk about, about like a visual intelligence, uh, I mean an, an interpretation of how you see things how in the it, world. Yeah. And how the director or the writer-director, cinematographer, how they want you to see and I want you to experience the story. It's like telling you, it's like giving the punchline at the right time. It, it's, it's more like, you know, monologues. You can do a monologue, and it's very, very similar, I think, uh, the choice of words that you use, the timing that you do when you tell, it, when you tell a story. Uh, it's the old joke, some people could tell a joke and some can't. Well, yeah. some people can make pictures, and yeah. some really can't. Sam Fuller can make pictures. <laughs> Sam can make pictures. Uh, and, and there's a certain, I mean, there's a certain thing there, too, where, again, the camera tracks out, you see the guns, and then you see John Ireland, and he's, his, his position, the camera, is at his level. It's mm -hmm. not looking down or looking up at him. So he's not threatening in any way. He's doing some work. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's that the, the foot going for the, the buzzer. And uh, that that's when... With the exchange of close-ups. With the exchange of close-ups again. Yeah. And you've got to understand that Westerns weren't done this way when that came on. And this came out as a B-movie, I think, basically. Yeah, it's Lippert Films or whatever, you know. Yeah. Barbara Britton, who was my first uh, screen crush. I loved her. I thought she was great. Really? Yeah, I liked Barbara. She was, Barbara Britton was beautiful. Yeah. Anyway. She was in Till We Meet Again by Frank Brzezig. Till We Meet Again, yes. And um, also The Bandit Queen, where she, she had, oh, it's a long story. It's tragic. Anyway, when she played with the, the short guy, Angela Rizzolo, Rizzotto. She was some, some sort of a, anyways, not the, it's a different from The Bandit Queen Tragi that came out. Not as sad as The Bears. No, no, not as sad yeah, as the beers, no. Yeah. But in any event, this thing with Fuller was, um, we always talked about, I remember NYU was um, one of the professors, Robert Gessner, would talk about, he said, uh, he said, if you, you think of cinema, think in terms of, I tell you, he's talking about cinema narrative, American narrative, although he was extremely, he was extremely, um, uh, very, very much taken with Antonioni and all the new wave uh, directors. Um, and Haig Mnuchin was do the production side, so hey, it was more with Haig, but I took a writing class with uh, Robert Gessner, and uh, he would always point out that uh, cinema and narrative, a kind of powerful narrative, he said, if you want to get a sense of how it should hit you, is read the tabloids. Mm -hmm. Don't read like New York Times or whatever, read the tabloids. Mm -hmm. Man kills wife over channel, changing channel. Yeah. Hey, what the hell is that? And you start, and he's like, and the house, and they, it's as simple, and that's what Fuller does, That's where I think. Sam Fuller came from. That's where he came the from. Yeah, but I, we didn't know. We're just watching this yeah, thing, right. and suddenly your eye is directed that way, and your emotion, and suddenly the movie opens in two cuts. Tension. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary tension. And the film pays off that way. These camera moves that he makes, like into the, into the, uh, at the money, after all that, the money is dropped on the ground. I think that's a reference to the, uh, 
the famous great Minnesota raid, right, where they screwed up everything. The, the younger brothers and uh, Jesse James and his, his yeah, gang, I'm not sure. where they just yeah. got the town was waiting for them. It was sort of like the beginning of the that's, Wild Bunch. Yeah, right. That's a reference, that famous thing where they, they had knocked over so many trains and so many banks. The people loved them. And, and that was uh, the beginning of their downfall. Yes, the beginning of their downfall. They made it, I think it was in um, the great Minnesota, the great Missouri raid. I forget the name of the town. But in any event, they got it. North Northfield. That's because Phil Kaufman made it. Phil Kaufman made it. That's yeah. it, yeah. This has been done in film so many times, that raid, because it was the Twilight of the Gods. They came in and they were being, they were waited for. They, everybody had them. Mm. And they, yeah, they had to hide out for a long period of time. The younger brothers were disbanded with them. But this is, there's also something very strong about the Fuller movie. And I saw it recently again on the big screen. I've only seen it twice on a big screen, really. And uh, that's the, the emotional impact he gives, um, the emotional level he gives to John Ireland, the Bob Ford character. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, he kind of really builds it up a lot that why, John, why Bob Ford kills his, his friend and sort of mentor, uh, Jesse James. And uh, he gives him a lot of emotional reasons, and you go with it. I mean, but it's a little simplistic, but it's the thing he has to, he's got to get a ring, he's going to marry Barbara Britton, he's got to do this, he's got to go straight. And uh, basically, you know, what was interesting to me was, was the betrayal. Mm-hmm. And because uh, even at that time, you have Reed Hadley playing uh, Jesse James with the beard. It's almost like a Jesus Judas story. Yeah. Um, and the thing that stays powerful throughout the whole, the element that stays and unites all this throughout the picture and the humiliation that Bob Ford goes through through the rest of his life, whatever's left of it, the humiliation is this extraordinary love he had for Jesse. Mm. And at the end, when he's finally shot, he says, Tell, I, I always love Jesse, I always he says. Jesse. It's the last line and of the movie. The last line of the film. Yeah. And there's this great moment in the film, too, where at a certain point, he didn't understand. He, he, he was wrong. He was young. He shouldn't have done it. We know that. But he, he wanted, he did it for, in the, in the film, Fuller's version, he did it for an emotionally good reason and a, you know, an evil act, good reason. It does, doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And he, he tries to live it down. He can't live it down. And so he embraces it at one point, and they actually put him on show, they put him on stage, and they have him reenact with actors. Oh, yeah. They have him reenact with And this was done. Bob Ford did that. Yeah. They went around. Don't forget that at uh, that time in America, you know, by the 1930s, they, they toured the car that Bonnie and Clyde got shot in. Yeah. You know. Ehrlich and Gentleman Jim were... Uh, Gentleman Jim? Yeah, what is it? Uh, Ward Bond. Oh, uh... Yeah, uh, John, L. John L. Sullivan, plays yeah. himself he, on stage, cutting, chopping wood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John L. Sullivan appears on stage. He's chopping wood yeah. and that sort of thing. And it, it, yeah. it's all promos for the fight, you know? So they had... It's the same thing existed, only they went from town to town. And here's Bob Ford. He's going to reenact for us exactly. <laughs> and so, well, I think... And Jesse James got a terrible actor playing Jesse James. And he says, well, I think I'm going to get up and fix that, straighten out that picture. <laughs> and he gets on the chair, and everybody's waiting. Yeah. And it's a wonderful moment, and John Island just can't go on. Yeah. You know? But this is what they did. But it's, it's um, uh, for some reason, this film, and I know what the reason is, it's, again, the visual, the visual storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, the intelligence uh, behind the framing and the cutting mm-hmm. and the camera move that um, affected me emotionally very strongly. This film and pick up on South Street. And then this movie of Sam Fuller's that I saw called Park Row, which I saw on uh, television. Mm-hmm. And that's a good example of you know, Fuller dealing with cuts like that, mm-hmm. and at the same time being a master of getting all the information and all the action in the single take with tracking, and also very often uh, crane shots, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, uh, I must say is not... <laughs> You know, it's not an easy thing because when you when you like when you try to do it yourself and you're in a situation, even when you're in effect like gangs or a number of other films, to shoot action with a crane and move it and 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 
convey the action. So like, you know, a lot of what um, so many, you know, like Spielberg and number, able to do it, like Empire of the Sun, has this extraordinary use of uh, masses of people mm -hmm. in the frame, movement within the frame, camera moves, editing, very interesting, very interesting. It's done with such authority and assurance. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a different kind of thing what Fuller did, for example, in Park Row in the, uh, the, uh, the uh, circulation war yeah. fight scene that goes on from door to door which is so ferocious and, and uh, tough. It's like something... It's a film about the newspaper business. About the newspaper the business of the 1880s in New York. Uh, it's something that somebody... It's like a, the, the film somehow escaped from an insane asylum. You know? <laughs> I mean, everybody's crazy. And you're just watching it with this, uh, this extraordinary... Um, they believed in what they were doing so strongly to get that newspaper out in a certain way, the story they're going to tell. And it was really... It's, that's a film that has to be made in terms of... Um, we're dealing with gangs in New York now, but... Uh, it deals from 1846 to 1862, but around the, right after 18, right after the Civil War, these gang, these uh, newspaper wars were amazing down in uh, Park Row and Horace Greeley. The city was just filled with newspapers yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, but uh, Fuller's um, use of close-ups. I remember it was Andrew Saris who said it's the opening scene is uh, uh, the intensity of close-ups as 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 much as you'd see in uh, Carl Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc. That's what he said. <laughs> but what's good about that kind of thing is you say, wait a minute, look at it again. Yeah. Oh, he's right. You know, it's, wow, those close-ups are amazing. And yeah. it just throws you right in the middle of the story. Mm -hmm. Normally, another person, I don't know, you, you get the guys coming. You see, another person who did it, like you look at the Wild Bunch. I looked at the beginning of that a few weeks ago again. I was about two in the morning. But they had a letterbox, so I was watching. And, uh, wow, you can see the, you know, see the image. So, it's a movie. Yeah, it's yeah. A, quite a film. And uh, you see in that, well, you say, oh, come on. They're coming into town, get them into the bank, mm -hmm. come on. And then the guys are waiting outside, they're gonna fire at them. Mm -hmm. No, no, if you're gonna go the other way, Peckinpah goes the opposite. Mm -hmm. He has a temperance meeting. He has a parade. He's yeah. got the kids with the scorpion. With the he's scorpion got the scorpion. ants. He's got, and it's all, and you know it's gonna hit. You know it's gonna hit, and he keeps going. And he's even doing it for like suspense. He's got some drums in there, Jerry Goldsmith music, where yeah. the drums are coming. Yeah, it's a but it's, it's yeah, tapping the drums, you feel that. And everybody's kind of moving along, all doing their thing. Yeah. Ernest Borgnine helps a lady he across the street. Lady, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> you know it's going to be mayhem. And then William Holden says, if they move, kill him. And when William Holden says, if they move, kill him, and directed by Sam Peckinpah. Jeez, and that's just, that's the pre-credit sequence. <laughs> so, I mean, if you look at both, I mean, they're both for me valid and beautiful yeah. in their own way, but it's like two different artists working completely, but the same stories, basically. Yeah, you know? Peckinpah was more of a right, uh, it's more like a novelistic. Yeah. Kind of sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand he shot uh, the same scene maybe five, six, five, six different angles, uh, five or six different lenses. Mm -hmm. uh, wide, tighter, 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 tighter. And oh, the so editing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, what he did, somebody pointed out, he, he made the film three times once in the writing, once in the production, once in the editing. You just redo it. You redo it. If you look at Straw Dogs, you can see it very clearly. You can see where they're cutting from medium, tighter, wider, tighter. You can see tons of coverage. Mm -hmm. Maybe two takes each, I don't know. Yeah. But he got the coverage, you know? And uh, uh, I know it's fascinating, his stuff. See so you when we go to the next. What do we got I think next? We got Autumn Leaves. Oh, Autumn I Leaves. Think. Oh. I think that's what's next. Okay. Okay. Great. I think Is it off the laser? Autumn no, the one I think was the laser. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think you have the laser. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's Autumn Leaves by Robert Aldrich, which is a film made in 1956 when Joan Crawford was, you know, middle-aged. And she's married to Cliff Robertson, who's a much younger man. And... So his first film, wasn't it? Cliff it it might have been. Yeah. It might have been. Damn microphone. Yeah, and she, that's it. Yeah, there we go. You got it now. And, and um, 
<laughs> I'll just hold it. Hold out. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. And then and she finds out after she's married him that he's not the man that he seemed to be. No, he's, he's got emotional yeah. problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not funny. He's, it's not, I mean, problems. it's really bad, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I think you could see probably one of the most beautiful representations of it in, in, uh, in um, a visual of, medium of madness, of, of madness yeah, yeah. Of, of a kind of, um, um, it's a madness that you can't, it really made me feel when I saw it that there's no control of it. In other words, yeah. it, it, you have no control over it and it, 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 it envelops you. Well, the reason you uh, wanted to go with this scene is because there's the shot. Oh, yeah, the shot where he says, somebody help me, and the wall is glass, but it works. And I mean, if you really see it in 35 millimeter too, it's shocking. And I was, I think it was 1954, this film? 57. 57. 56. 56. 56. I was about 13. 13 years old, 13 years old, so, yeah. And, uh, or 14 or something, I was really, really shocking. And I think his, his father's played by Lauren, Lauren Green. Lauren Green. Yeah. And uh, basically, the character Cliff Robertson plays a beautiful job. Uh, plays what is a sweet guy. He's very nice to her. He says, "Hey, what happened to your hand?" But the scene prior he's, to that, he's, yeah, he's thrown a statue on it. So. Uh, no, it was a, a typewriter. It's a typewriter. He took the, the typewriter and threw it. Yeah, it was a statue. Maybe what he, he goes crazy and and she says, "No, no, it's all right." And I don't want to show you the, the black eye and all that sort of thing. Um, and basically, she finds out that he's with a pathological liar. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, something that his father had done to him. That's why he said, close the door. They let me see. The, they, they shouldn't have let me look in the door, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember being uh, the moody lighting, mm -hmm. the shadow over her face. And you're saying that's because? She, I think, at, at a certain point in her career in the late 40s, started to have herself shot in a very particular way so that her forehead was always in shadows. And you can see it really clearly in a movie like Daisy Kenyon by yeah. Otto Preminger. Yeah. But in this movie, too, where the whole face, actually, a lot of the time is. But the lighting and the shadow, the shadow yeah. work in this picture really works that way. Yeah. And it works for the emotional, it gives you a sense, the emotional, the emotional um, state of this character played by Cliff Robinson. And the moment when it cut to such a bold thing to do, a glass wall, yeah. it shouldn't work, but it does work. It does work. And it goes on, it's very short. It does it once, very briefly. It does it once, that's yeah. it. But it's like a horror, it's like a, it's like a horror film effect in a way. But you love the guy, mm -hmm. you like him. He's, 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 not, he's not, even though he's, he's, he's not controlling, I mean, he, he can't control what he does. And he, he freaks out and many times in the picture. You, he's greatly sympathetic. And, um, and of course, it has the great theme song by Nat King, with Nat King Cole singing it. And I think the film was sort of made as a Joan Crawford vehicle. Was mm -hmm. that it? Yeah. yeah. And it, these, the lighting in this picture, who did? I don't even know. I don't now. know. Oh, God, down. these guys are so sure. incredible. I, but the thing about the lighting in this, there's something else about the lighting. And the drama, the fear, that, the fear that's kind of um, set up or um, uh, conveyed by the shadows and the, and the light uh, is contrasted with these flat, horrifyingly uh, bright sort of, I, it's a thing, if you're in LA and you're depressed, the light yeah. is really scary. Yeah, and there's a lot of it. And there's the a time. lot yeah. of the light, <laughs> and it's always shining, the sun is shining. It's absolutely frightening, and it, you could, I mean, yeah, there are people that went under with it. I mean, you just mm -hmm. don't, and this picture has that. There are pools, remember Long Green, later on, it goes to the, the Beverly Hills Hotel or whatever it was. I said, it, this is worse than, go back with the shadows. I said, this is, and it has a flatness, and he sort of conveyed it again later, whatever happened to Baby Jane, somewhat. Mm -hmm. Well, that becomes very. It's more Grand Guignol. Uh, yeah, yeah. Grand Guignol. But this one, and there's another one, well, this whole period with uh, Robert Aldrich, Kiss Me Deadly has it too, that kind of lighting. Yeah. to a certain extent, yeah. the exteriors. Mm -hmm. But uh, Kiss Me Deadly, 
Autumn Leaves, and a film called Attack, which was really... And The Big Knife. And The Big Knife, has, that's my favorite of them. But um, Attack is an interesting film because mm -hmm. of... Uh, uh, it, again, they were selling it as a uh, war picture attack. Basically, it's a play. The, the name of the play was called The Fragile Fox, and it's a code. They would say, Fragile Fox calling uh, Charlie Company, Fragile Fox. And it was about cowardice and uh, under fire. Eddie Albert does a great job as this Captain Cooney, and Jack Palance is his underling mm -hmm. who hates him. And he knows that he's sending these men in to be killed, and you know, and this extraordinary psychic, uh, psychological, emotional battle between him and Jack Palance and... Uh, and uh, 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 Eddie Albert, and that's also the film where at the end they get invaded by tanks, and Robert Aldrich have one tank. So did the old, yeah, did the old panning movie. around. Yeah. Same tank kept coming around. <laughs> 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 it was a very, very tough movie, and I think he made all those four films like within two years, three years. Mm -hmm. You know, all yeah, four pictures. Yeah, the richest period in his work. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That's it for part one of our archival conversation between Martin Scorsese and Kent Jones. Part two will be released on Friday. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org. F I L M L I N C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.